Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, brought to you by 11FS. Today, we're going to talk about money and mental health. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and I'm joined by some people who are involved in the heart of money and mental health awareness, education, and support. They're looking for solutions to the very real problems the subject of money can cause when it comes to people's mental health. So our guests today are Katie Evans, who's the Head of Research and Policy at the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute. How are you today, Katie? I'm really well, thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming. I'm also joined by Joe Surtees, the Policy Manager at the Single Financial Guidance Body. How are you today, Joe? Apart from getting lost on the way here, I'm doing quite well, Sarah. <laughs> you are not the only one. Um, and last but my name is least, I'm joined by James Nicholson, an engineer at Monzo. How are you, James? I'm really well, thank you. Brilliant. Okay, well, welcome to the show, everybody. So we're having this discussion today to coincide with Time to Talk Day on the 7th of February, which encourages everyone to talk about mental health. Mental health problems affect one in four of us, yet people are still afraid to talk about it. Time to Talk Day wants to break down those stigmas and get people talking more openly about mental health. So before we get started, um, I would like each of you to give me a little bit of background on uh, the companies you work for and the roles you, you do there. So um, if you if you want to start with you, Katie? Absolutely. So I run the research and policy team at Money and Mental Health. We are quite a new charity and we're a bit weird in that we don't provide any help to people who are experiencing either mental health problems or financial difficulty directly. But instead, what we do is try to understand the problems that people are facing as they relate to their money or their mental health and how those two things interact. And then think of kind of practical things we can do about it. So that might be tools and services that financial services firms, banks can offer, or it might be changes in government policy or the way the NHS should work, but always trying to fix the problems. Perfect. Um, how about you, Joe? Uh, so if you could give us an overview of, of what the company is you work for, because I understand you've had a, a name change or a rebrand, as some people might understand it. Yes, that's right, Sarah. So the snappily titled Single Financial Guidance Body is a merger of three older uh, government agencies, which are the uh, Pensions Advisory Service, Pensions Wise, and the Money Advice Service. Really, we do about three big things. One is we give people guidance on their pensions. Two is we fund debt advice across the UK. And three, and this is the area that I work in, we try to help people improve their financial capability. That means accessing the right products and services for them, savings more, and budgeting, of course. Brilliant. And James, um, so you're, you work for Monzo, which most of our listeners know. Fabulous. Um, but how much consideration does Monzo give to this subject of mental health and, and how is that reflected in, in what you do? Great question. Um, it's interesting. We kind of attack mental health as both something that we, we address in our culture as well as the way that we sort of build features in the app itself. My involvement with Monzo has been for a very long time. I've been lucky around, enough to be around since the beginning. Um, and Throughout that time, I've I've been lucky to work on features like our our gambling block, um, our self disclosure type features. Um, our sort of strapline, if you will, is that we're making money work for everyone, and that absolutely includes um, people who are struggling with mental health problems. Brilliant. Okay. Well, as you can tell, I have some very qualified guests in the room, so let's get into this discussion. So, financial pressure does impact mental health, but that isn't actually a question. Nobody nobody questions that anymore. But um, I think what does remain is, is the stigma around money concerns and financial problems. And, and I think there is still, um, you know, a, a lot of a, a lot of stigma against people talking about having money problems. Is this is this something that you guys still see? Is it is it hard to get people to open up about it? And and why is that? Absolutely. So at Money Mental Health, we talk to people who are experiencing mental health problems all the time. We have a panel of 5,000 that we talk to every week. Um, and we quite often ask people to do things in the media as well. But we find it so much easier 
to find people who want to talk about their mental health in the media than we do people who will talk about, say, going bankrupt. That's really hard. And for me, I think part of the issue is that we accept that experiencing a mental health problem isn't something you can control, isn't your fault, but we don't feel that way yet about experiencing financial difficulties. I think particularly in the UK, we feel that being in problem debt culturally is a kind of a, a personal failing. You know, I was certainly taught by my nan when I was a kid that, you know, you never buy anything on the never-never. You don't get into debt. You don't take take loans out. And that was a bad thing to do. When in practice, most of us will require credit at some point in our lives. And sometimes things are going to go wrong in life and we're going to get into difficulty. So, sorry, um, you think there's still sort of a blame culture, actually, if people feel either embarrassed or like they're going to be told it's their own fault and they shouldn't have been so silly in the first place? Absolutely. And I think people feel like they've done something wrong if they get into problem debt, when actually what the research shows, and Joe's better qualified on this than me, is that most of the time people are just living with very low levels of savings in the UK. Um, and, you know, we hit unexpected expenses. You know, if I break my specs today, I'm 200 quid down. If the dog gets unwell, has to go to the vet. If the car breaks down, you know, things happen in life that go wrong. And sometimes that can make it really hard to make ends meet. And I mean, we often call it the the big telly myth. So this idea, is, as Katie says, most of the data shows that over 50% of people who run into financial difficulty do so because of something completely unexpected. They weren't misusing money. They became unemployed or they had an unexpected bill or big health issues, as with here. And yet... Often when you hear it talked about in the media or even in everyday conversation, people say, oh, it's people out there buying two big televisions or spending all their money on fish and chips, which just really isn't the case. And the big problem here is that it can only take one mistake or have one issue exacerbated rolls out of control. So if we think about an unexpected bill, let's say your boiler breaks, you often think about it like Jenga, for example. One of the blocks comes out and then everything else falls. Um, there's an organisation called Step Change, which is a national debt advice charity that looked at this and showed that um, if you miss, I think, a couple of payments, then actually that impact on your financial life can still be being felt five years later. Yeah, I think that's important to sort of to break it down. Actually, there's maybe sort of like a, there's lots of different ways that money can cause stress. Um, you know, there's there's there are there are people who just don't have enough, who are just never going to have enough, no matter how well they manage it, because there are unfortunately a lot of people in this country who who are living in that that sort of uh, that poverty situation. There are those who don't understand how to manage their money and and get themselves into a terrible knot. Um, there are those, and I don't think we should ignore them, who maybe do have pro- other mental health problems that lead to money. So if you talk about gambling addiction or spending addictions, and then as you said, actually it sounds like the largest group is just normal people who have one unexpected bill or one expense to pay. So I think um, what's clear is that there's lots of, there's no one group of people here. You can't just say those are the people, that's their problem. This is how we solve it. Um, So, you know, is there a way that technology can help with this to help us find, you know, more personalized solutions, more more personalized advice, maybe? Um, You know, I don't know, James, you want to talk about that a little bit, but... um, Sure, indeed. Um, That's a really, really interesting thought. Um, the, the most interesting messages that we get at Monzo are from customers who have told us that suddenly having that insight into their own spending has let them course correct, if that makes sense. And I, and I don't obviously mean people who um, uh, really do get into big financial difficulties. You know, the boiler breaking is, is the perfect example because no one wants to take a payday loan or not pay creditors back, right? But I think having that sort of real-time understanding of where your money's going, um, 
really does make a difference, just that little insight, even if it's not a, a sort of feature targeted at that specifically. So, so I guess the sort of thing you're talking about is um, features like on my Monzo, whenever I make um, any kind of payment, my phone pings and is like, you spent £10. Overall today, you've spent £60. Um, just those kind of little features that actually are, are kind of reminding you of what you've done today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that insight does does really seem to make a difference for people. And I know from certainly user research sessions, people have very, very different ways of managing their money. I've seen everything from people who have a spreadsheet of every single purchase they've made in the last 10 years, down to people who spend until the card stops working. Um, and I think bringing those insights certainly for, for the latter group of people has made a huge impact. I mean, the, the kind of the fun side of that is the um, the Monzo end of year. Well, you say fun. I don't know if anybody else has looked at their Monzo end of year spend and if anybody else was horrified how much they spend in Pret a Manger. Um, always press. Always. It's always prep for Monzo users for, for reasons that are definitely from the podcast. Um, but are there any other ways that, that um, you know, maybe you, Joe, and um, Katie are seeing technology help you kind of dig into what those problems are? And then actually the next step from that is using technology to help build solutions. So I think actually... It's worth reflecting just a little bit on how experiencing mental health problem, which, as you say, one in four of us is, is at any given time. And actually, it's also worth noting that about a third of people who are experiencing mental health problem don't know that they're unwell. So they've never seen a doctor, they've never had a diagnosis, and they're not receiving any treatment. Um, but those mental health problems can affect the way we manage our money in quite dramatic ways. So symptoms might include things like memory problems, which can make keeping track of spending really difficult. Some mental health problems are associated with things like increased impulsivity. So managing that desire to buy a treat in, in, you know, boots on your lunch break or a coffee on the way home when you're feeling low, but actually bigger items as well. So particularly for people with bipolar disorder, we see people going on very serious, significant spending sprees and getting into really serious financial difficulties as a result. But just general problem problem solving, planning being impaired, all of which makes that day-to-day task of managing money really hard and means that even if you understand what you should be doing, and when we talk to our research community members, people with lived experience of mental health problems, what they say is, like, I'm not stupid, I know what I should do, but I'm unwell, and actually my condition makes it really difficult to stick within those boundaries. And that for me is when tech, like some of the tools Monzo offer, gets really cool because it puts that information in the palm of your hand, it does it in a really timely way, and means that it's easier for you to keep track of things and, and to nudge your own behaviour and manage it if you can. I mean, I think the wonderful thing that technology can do is per- allow people to personalise their own experience in a cost-effective way, because ultimately cost does come into this. You can't assign every individual their own sort of personal financial valet, unfortunately. What technology can do is allow them to set the preferences early and then update those as their experience changes. Now, obviously, well, from personal experience, I know that my brother's got bipolar disorder, often experiences sort of money worries, and I often have to step in and try and help him manage these. I live two hours away from him. He's often intermittently on the phone. It's very difficult to get along and, and talk to him and deal with these issues. If you had a sort of the right technology out there to help him, then yes, that would be um, incredibly effective for people in that situation. Although to possibly throw a sort of a slight spanner in the works here, I would say the one concern possibly about technology is that you can't let it become a sort of answer for everything. You can't say, oh, well, 
financial technology will sort X problem, Y problem, Z problem. Look at the moment, we've got huge issues with the closing of high street banking options. And a lot of that is because most people are now going online and most people are digital, but not everybody is digital. So we need to really think as we move forward with the fintech agenda, how you balance that with sort of more traditional ways of contacting and working with people who still want that experience. Yes, I mean, I guess that there's two sides to that, isn't there? There's the people who, um, for whatever reason, just aren't digital. Either they they are they live in a position, they live in a place where it's not accessible. They don't have the financial, you know, they don't even be able to afford a smartphone to pay the internet bill to use the app, which is supposed to be helping them. Um, and then I guess the other side of it is there will presumably be people out there who. Um, are for whatever one reason or another their mental health doesn't allow them to use those products in the first place so they do they do need the kind of hands-on or just the choice i suppose of other help options and other methods choice is absolutely the right word so i guess what we see is that sometimes technology makes things worse if you think about the way we design tech products it's usually about making consumer journeys really smooth right how few clicks can we make this thing happen in how easy can i make it for my user which for most people is exactly the right approach. But when you run well, can sometimes make things too easy. So things like one-click purchasing or being able to just tap a contactless card and the money's gone. We know for some of the people that we talk to, makes things too easy and makes it very difficult to keep track. Um, Sometimes the friction of using cash and being able to split it up into different jars and see it disappear during the week is really helpful for people. Yeah, I mean, we, we actually, when we were preparing this podcast, looked at some stats, which had actually come out of the States, but I'm sure are applicable everywhere, that um, people who used mobile payments were actually more likely to get into their overdraft because they were so busy just tap, tap, tap. They they stopped looking at what it was that was actually, you know, that they're actually spending. And and as you said, uh, James, they just spend until the money's gone or until they're so far into their overdraft or whatever else. Um, but that idea of like frictionless finance and can friction be a good thing, that's that's something that Monzo looked at uh, quite carefully, I think, with your, with your gambling product. Yeah, indeed. Um, friction is, is is just the right word. Um, we performed some uh, research with users. We we spoke to gambling charities, and so that the way that the gambling bot works on Monza, if you if you're not familiar with it, is that once you've enabled the block, you cannot turn it off without speaking to our customer support. And if they then switch it off for you, you have to wait 48 hours before that gambling ability comes back. Um, and just that period of time is enough to let people take stock of the decision and perhaps turn it back on again. And and we see that too. Um, And something like 59,000 Monzo customers have the gambling block enabled now. And, and that's fascinating that it, actually that's that's quite a high proportion of your users if you look at you know it overall. But um, and are there other options? Do you think where other places where that friction could be introduced? So I don't know a particular merchant or or if uh, somebody I don't know for example has a, a problem with alcohol to turn off uh, purchases off license. Is, is is that something else that you might look at or? Uh, absolutely, I saw that uh, Barclays have recently launched a, a feature that sort of does a broader um, by, by category blocking. Um, I think the only limitation there, I guess, is is data. We, um, the the card networks have uh, what are called merchant category codes that let us uh, see the kind of purchase and is, is what drives a lot of our categorization. But certainly, you can do some fairly narrow uh, blocking of specific merchant category codes to, to enable this. 
So to, to sort of turn it back around, I guess, so we're talking about what you uh, as a bank and what Barclays as a bank are doing to help your customers. But what about the tech people who are, cre- I suppose, creating those problems, as you mentioned there, Katie, creating those one-click purchases? Um, you know, it doesn't have to be kind of one of the online bingo sites that causes a problem. It could be Amazon if what you are is an impulsive purchaser when you're unwell. Or, you know, do you think that there is a perhaps a responsibility on some of these these providers of, of, of these merchants, I suppose, to, to think about how they might introduce some some extra choice there or some opt-in, opt-out kind of friction to introduce friction to certain purchases? So I would argue that everyone and all all parts of the ecosystem were retailers, but also, you know, um, internet providers potentially and advertisers all have responsibility to give people choice. So the number one thing I'd say is that we mustn't patronise people. And even when you're unwell, you have the right to do stupid things and, and to, to make mistakes, to live your own life. It's really important we protect that autonomy. Um, but what we should have is the ability to put kind of personalised friction in place. So if I know that something is problematic for me, and particularly given mental health problems fluctuate, if I know that it's all right for me today, but actually in a couple of weeks it might get me in real trouble, the ability to turn that off for myself is really important. And I think sometimes, particularly financial services firms and retailers, kind of thinking about introducing and offering that option of friction is quite a difficult conversation. Um, we're not used to thinking about how we limit consumers' use, particularly of their own money. But actually, if it's been done in that way, if it's been done with the consumer's consent on you know their own decision, we certainly, talking to, the, to our research community, know it's a thing lots of people would welcome. Just to jump in here, maybe maybe slightly to be sort of devil's advocate here and I suppose this sort of question for, for Monzo and obviously you, Katie we've worked with other organisations on this what does that moment decision of using a blocker look like is it just you access one of the sort of menus within Monzo and click once to say I want the blocker on and then that's it because I suppose my worry there would be is that allowing people who maybe need a more in-depth um look at their financial situation or their medical situation or their sort of personal situation and being con- put in contact with with the best in the world monzo isn't an expert in alcohol issues or mental health Absolutely. issues so so is that f- sort of i suppose what's the word functionality there to actually put people in contact with additional organizations that might be able to help them at that point of decision yeah um so i think we uh, I, I mentioned it very briefly before um we built a specific feature that's accessible through help that lets you as a customer kind of write out the things that you're worried about um, or, or mental health problems relating to money that you have that are relayed to our vulnerable customers team so that when we're talking to you as a customer, um, we have access to this and we can frame the conversation based on that. Um, and I think that's really important, that sort of uh, human interaction um, that, that's why we call them the vulnerable customers team. They're there to look after people who've got into trouble. You know, they're not there to send round bailiffs or or that kind of thing. Because, as we said before, no one chooses not to pay creditors. Is there is there an option there? I suppose um, I can't remember if you do this. Forgive me to have kind of when you do turn the gambling off. You know, to have a click button that's a straight call through to maybe a support line um, for one of those excellent organisations out there that, that help people with those sort of problems. You can't turn it off without talking to customer support. Okay. So there will be a person, and you're saying, hey. I would like to gamble. And they'll say, okay, tell us about that. And they could refer you to the the, the, the more qualified organisational party? Yeah, Step Changers was a great example of, of someone that we've, we would like to refer people to, ah, but there so are, there are plenty more. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. How can Sam afford the latest smartphone while she's at university? 
It must cost her parents a fortune to send her there. Oh, she's fine. She can just borrow the cash and pay it back when she bags a high-powered graduate job. Well, the tuition fees alone must be nearly £30,000. Well, she'll be earning a lot more than that after a couple of years. But imagine starting your career with £60,000 worth of debt. Hmm. Yeah, you could buy plenty of smartphones with that. Millennials. Future consumers or debt slaves? Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash join us. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I think the interesting thing here as well to look at is that there are people with m- existing mental health conditions who struggle to manage money, and there are people whose financial situation actually can can lead to to mental health issues as well. Um, so I wonder if um, there is a, a piece to be said about education um, in either financial management, all those links, because I don't know if people think, oh, I'm, I'm worried about money. There's a difference between being like, I'm not going to come out tonight because I'm worried about money and, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Um, so I'm just sort of using that as a step into maybe a conversation about education and financial literacy um, and, and education around mental health as well, which I, which I know are separate things, but I wonder if there is... Um, a conversation about how technology can be used to deliver those in a, in a more accessible way. So I think you're entirely right about that. I think when I sort of think through the sort of potential of technology, for me, it seems there's sort of three ways of approaching it. One is what the individ- how it can help the individual with their choices, such as sort of the Monzo blocking, how it can help financial services firms in their interaction with their customers as in knowing them better, and then how it can help individuals access information, advice, and guidance at the level they want at exactly the time they want. So obviously there are a lot of telephone helplines out there, but they only only operate until about 5 p.m. There are a lot of, you know, face-to-face advice organizations, they're actually amazing ones, but they'll operate sort of for a couple of hours in the afternoon and sometimes at weekends. And yet there is sort of a terrible level of, low level of financial capability across the UK. So maybe there's a possibility of by linking into financial technology, this big bank of information, all these different organizations that are doing tremendous work, that you can then sort of structure your lives relationships with financial services, insurance, um, current accounts, even things like utilities to actually ensure that when you need this help and advice, it's there proactively for you. I think Joe's absolutely right on that. So I always get a bit nervous when people start talking about financial education because it, for me, it conjures up these awful images of people sitting in classrooms, being patronised and, and told things that most people actually already know. And the reasons why they might be struggling to, to to behave in a kind of an optimally way financially usually aren't to do with the fact that they don't know what the right thing to do is. It's usually that there are other pressures in their lives or they're too busy or they're, they're caring for someone or they're unwell or, you know, something's making it really hard. But I think thinking about how we get that guidance and advice to people at exactly the right time, as Joe's saying, when it's most relevant 
is actually what the evidence just makes the biggest difference. So really thinking less about financial education for me, which is giving people information and expecting them to do something with it, but instead thinking about financial coaching and the timeless that intervention. So we've just kicked up a project of work um, in partnership with the FCA, where we're going to be looking at transactions data. And particularly if we're able to pick up patterns of behaviour in transactions data that might indicate that someone's experiencing financial difficulties, that in some situations might mean indicate that they may be experiencing a mental health problem, that could make it harder to ask for help or to seek advice. And whether we can use some of those kind of patterns of financial behaviour to get help to people when they need it. So proactively offer, you know, if we see in someone's transaction data, for example, that it looks like they have a gambling problem, they might not know that the gambling block exists. And so can we use that opportunity to kind of provide information and a tool to them that helps them manage that behaviour? Um, and I, I I do see your point. I just, I wonder if it's worth talking a little bit more about financial education at an earlier stage. So saying a lot of people do know what they need to do, I struggle with that, I think, because a lot of people, you know, you'll speak to who don't actually know what an APR or an interest rate is or compound interest. So they think they're taking out a loan and they don't, um, they don't actually understand what that interest rate will mean, you know, what their monthly payments are going to be back and, and how, you know, particularly with some of the more predatory sites that can be, you know, a thousand times more than whatever it is the loan they took out in the first place. Um, you know, even things so far as kind of like talking about mortgages and, and talking about credit cards and, and you know, uh, Laura and I had a, my producer and I had a conversation about how when you're at university, you get a debit card with an interest-free overdraft and then the minute you leave university, they turn the interest on and all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? Why am I paying interest now? What is this? How does it work? So um, I, I want wonder if there is a, a something to be said about going into schools at that earlier stage and doing some I'm not talking about you know incredibly complex equations here but actually when you're t- teaching mathematics to students which students are all taught maybe making it tangible connecting it to real life experiences so you know I don't think anybody remembers what a CERD is, or maybe they do, but I certainly don't. But, you know, actually knowing that when I'm learning about compound interest, that's how you're going to pay a mortgage for the rest of your life. Do you think that there's maybe something to be said for getting at that earlier age as well? I always feel tremendously sorry for teachers because when anybody ever wants anything done... It's the teacher's fault. No, it's (laughs) let's get the teachers to do it. And I think actually this is probably a good thing for technology in some ways because... If you're a busy teacher, teaching you know, maths, as you said, you don't essentially have a lot of time to learn how to teach uh, financial services or mm-hmm. compound interest or all these different issues that people keep on trying to push into the curriculum. And you need to remember as well that actually financial education is on the curriculum, but fewer than 50% of schools actually teach the national curriculum, mm-hmm. which is a strange fact. But Technology, again, allows personalization, allows outside information to be sort of provided in the right modular form. So, yeah, I mean, technology in this circumstance could help with that because it relieves the amount of pressure on teachers to learn new information and come up with new lesson plans for kids when they've got all the other stuff to do in their busy day-to-day life. So, yes, I think, and I think probably throwing this one out to the, the rest of the people speaking here, which is... I don't think that's really been mentioned very much so far. I can't think of many discussions on the role of technology in financial education. So maybe that's a, a good next step for, you know, a sort of intelligent thrusting organisation, one of which might be in the room. Um, so I think, I think you know, I, I, will let, I will let James pick that point up. But the thing that springs to mind instantly is um, we've seen quite a few, certainly 11 of us, um, uh, 
apps uh, targeted at children but controlled by parents. So there's one called Osper, there's one called Go Henry, and what it is is you know no kid these well not many kids these days want ten pounds in pocket money. They want money they can spend online or they want to what it, you know, contactless payments. Um, so these apps are very much like parents pay the money in and they can do things like you know very classically if you if you do the washing up or you unload the dishwasher then your money goes in and that kind of thing. So I think there's probably a space it, those things sort of things are out there. Um, but I wonder if they're mainly used by financially savvy, savvy parents who already know that they need to be helping their kids do this. Maybe there's a, a broader piece at work there. Um, James, you know, what you, you actually have an account at Monzo, do you not, for under-18s, is that correct? Uh, we go down to the age of 16 now, okay. um, which is a fairly recent change, actually, um, but something that's really nice to support. Um, I think I, I totally agree with what you're saying, that I, I guess uh, Osberger, Henry, and, and so forth would tend to be financially savvy parents, and so giving more children... Uh, the freedom to to tinker and and, and learn in a, in a space that's safe. Obviously, you don't charge interest or that kind of thing to anyone under eighteen. Um, could be really interesting, but financial education is very difficult because it's a it's a very big set of things to to try and present to people in a very small space. Obviously, when we're offering people things like overdrafts, we can explain what this thing is, what it costs, and that kind of thing, and we we try to do this in a very transparent way. I think. Monzo has a history of trying to be very transparent and open about the things that we do, and I think people respond to that really well. Um, but you know, we we don't do mortgages, we don't do all of the things that we'd like to teach people about. We certainly don't do payday loans or credit cards or the things that I think are often um, big contributors to to people in money money problems. Yeah, it's it's an absolutely it's an interesting point, especially as um, you know, kids are are. are much more, much almost greater adopters of technology than adults these days. And, you know, talking about all the stuff everybody talks about all the time, about the games and, you know, the games that all the kids are addicted to and you spend money whilst you're playing the games online and all of a sudden you've run up a bill of, you know, however much money it is because nobody realised there was a control you could turn off. Um, I wonder if there's something else that we haven't really touched on here, but um, sort of maybe regional attitudes to money or kind of cultural attitudes to money. Um just, just as a kind of a, just a general, you know, not not you know, pinning, you know, particular attitudes to to one group or another. But I think we probably should also touch on that as well. That we've talked about a lot of different people have different ranges of problems and solutions. There's also a, a cultural element to this as well, presumably as well. I said as well twice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things as well, just to bring up where the example came from, was that in the States, nobody has an overdraft. They were like, why would you have an overdraft? That's a terrible idea. You know, you're borrowing money, and yet they all live on credit. Now, to me, you know, I'm in a reasonably privileged position. I understand that they're actually pretty much the same thing. So I was thinking about that and how one size doesn't fit all. Stump the group because everybody's from the UK. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. I mean, there are very interesting cultural differences within the UK, but I think our silence probably illustrates the point that perhaps haven't been thought through as much because there are obviously certain religious groups in the UK who don't use interest-bearing products. There are other sort of cultural groups, Not I'm thinking often here of cultural groups from uh, sort of Afro-Caribbean backgrounds who have savings clubs that are completely outside the normal financial services system. And I'm not sure, and speaking for a sort of government organisation here, enough's been done to really understand how that experience of the financial system informs your approach to it. Certainly when you're out and about, I'm not sure anybody makes enough effort to bring in sort of faith groups, for example, into these discussions. So I think a next step in a lot of these conversations is how do we get these groups that perhaps aren't engaging, but have incredibly useful and interesting and valuable things to contribute? How do we make sure we hear that voice in the conversation? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and that I was thinking that when we were talking about the Monzo group, who are probably the same as the Go Henry and Osper group, are actually probably just quite one demographic there. And we have to remember that attitudes to money, and partly this is, I think, actually how people can get into trouble, is people forget attitudes and money are so different culturally, regionally, et cetera, et cetera. Um, maybe that's another opportunity for, for technology to go out and, and gather in some of those insights from the groups that um, perhaps haven't been heard before. And I think also if we're um, if we're talking about you know how we educate people, we can't assume everybody has you know how, not how we educate people, how we're providing education. You can't just provide it to to one group and assume there you go, we've done our bit, <laughs> we're leaving now. <laughs> um, so I think uh, the the we've, we've touched on all sorts of different areas here. Um, is there anything else that you guys want to mention that you think we haven't touched on? Any different types of problems that we've we've left by the wayside we've we've talked about two there that perhaps haven't been addressed so the cultural differences in the educational piece is there anything else that you think is worth bringing up when we're talking about this um actually potentially cyclical issue of money and mental health problems i think one really important point i wouldn't want to go home without talking about is how hard it can be for someone who's unwell or in problem debt to seek help so we know that half of people in problem debt across the uk are experiencing a mental health problem and one of the big difficulties we have that Joel will tell us more about is, is getting people to advice. We have a brilliant free advice sector in the UK, but quite often people wait more than a year after they get into problem debt to go and, and find that advice. For me, one of the big opportunities here is to try to work out how we can prevent some of those difficulties upstream. So, so often I work at Money Mental Health, you know, the most heartbreaking thing we see is when someone tells you a story of getting small full debt and having bailiffs at the door that have left them really distressed, that have, you know, in some cases meant they've been hospitalised or left feeling suicidal. And we sit back at the end of the day in our office and go, you could have prevented all of that. If that person had been offered some help to manage their spending earlier on, if they'd had a tool like a gambling block available to them, if there'd been a way of seeing that, say, when they become too unwell to work, that their income had stopped coming into their account and their bank had reached out to offer some help, then we might not have ended up in such a desperate situation. So for me, that's the potential big win from technology is wraparound support for people and getting help at exactly the right time. And enabling proactivity from providers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I always remember in actually a lot of circumstances, a conversation I once had with somebody who worked for one of the um, big banks, who I won't mention, and he talked about sort of customer engagement and he talked about the letters that customers get sent when they run into financial difficulty. And he said, we spent 10 years trying to work out exactly the right language to use. And then we realised that 90% of people threw away the letters without reading them, and that we should have spent 10 years looking at what the envelope looked like. And I think in this circumstance, technology is that envelope. It allows people to have the experience they want, when they want it, with the tone of voice, the face, the interaction that they want. And I think to go back to what Katie was saying, what we haven't explored is how much that could be a social experience, about how much you could link that to other people in the same circumstance. It can feel very lonely being in debt. It can feel incredibly lonely being in debt, having mental health difficulties, when you can't imagine that others have ever shared that same experience. Maybe there's a role here for technology to both present the face to you that you want presented, but also other faces of people in the same circumstance and make it a conversation that gives people the courage, the bravery to seek this good help and advice that is in place. Sort of the idea of a, a social forum, perhaps, 
that where people can go to opt in and, and, and get advice from other people who are in the same position, but without having to go and sit in a room in a church hall hmm. in a circle. I mean, I don't know if you've been on Twitter recently, but people aren't sh- uh, sort of scared to share their experiences <laughs> on that. Hopefully we can get to a place where people are using that for, let's say, a more socially useful purpose in this circumstance. Maybe not Twitter, maybe something more specific designed elsewhere, but um, something that allows them to get in contact with others in the same situation and really use that group power to achieve change. Brilliant idea. Is there anything else you wanted to add, James? Uh, not for me. I really, really love the envelope story. I think that's such a um, nice way to highlight that actually technology is this opportunity to present things to people in a way that isn't scary, that can actually help them you know, find those insights, find a way to, to solve their problems. Um, and, I, and I love the, the discussion about um, community or some sort of way to do this socially. Um, we see it to an extent within our own community forum, but obviously these are people who are very engaged and when you're dealing with a mental health problem, that's not necessarily going to be the case. So there's a big area for opportunity there. Brilliant. Well, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. Lots and lots of food for thought there. Um, where can people find out more about you and your companies if they want to continue the conversation? Maybe they have an idea of how to solve some of the problems we've mentioned. I'm sure you'd, you'd probably love to hear that. Uh, Katie? We absolutely would love to hear from people, particularly people who are interested in looking at transactions data with us. We're running this program with the FCA for the next six months. And I want to talk to anyone who would like to talk about data and preventative interventions and mental health the best place to find both more information and our contact details is moneyandmentalhealth.org perfect joe so as i said we're actually made up of three sort of separate organizations so people are interested in sort of general money issues i just google money advice service and i'll take them through to that website if they're interested in their pensions and discussing that further look for the pensions advisory service or pension wise and they'll find additional information there Brilliant. And James, if people want to get in touch with you about maybe their own ideas for how Monzo can help um, in this area, where's the best place to do that? Definitely our community forum, uh, community.monzo.com. I'd also really recommend searching Monzo Mental Health online to see the things that we've written about both mental health and money, the potential for the features that we could build, and also the way that uh, mental health culture works within Monzo. Uh, And finally, uh, if you follow at Making Monzo on Twitter, it's this wonderful live stream of all of the cool things that we're building. Brilliant. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Just before we go, this year we wanted to choose a charity to support going forwards in everything we do at 11FS. After shortlisting six fantastic causes, we as an office collectively decided to target MIND, one of the UK's leading charities for mental health awareness. MIND provides invaluable support to anyone and everyone who suffers from mental illness by campaigning to improve services and promoting understanding. If you haven't already, please visit our swag shop via the 11FS website to bag your very own branded t-shirt. As well as looking super cool, all proceeds will go directly to MIND. Alternatively, you can text GIVI88 to 770, that's 70070, with your chosen amount. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to the podcast and drop us a review on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. That's all for this week. Goodbye. Goodbye.